Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today we continue to explore a very important question. Who are we? It's an attempt to understand what makes us us and not them. Yes, it can become a way to alienate, hate, or condemn them, but it doesn't have to be. It's also a way of understanding ourselves better. How come we are who we are? How can we believe what we believe? And how? why do we do what we do? And to understand who we are, we have to reckon at some point in some way with our heritage. What have we been given? The past is an anchor in both senses of the term. It provides a grounding to keep a ship from going uh, hither and yon, but it also can impede movement and hinder uh, from continuing to progress or, or to change or to go in a, in a given direction. Who we are does not have to be entirely defined by what we have been. But even if we wish to change many things about our heritage, we still have to grapple with that heritage. What have we been given? What was done in the past that continues to shape us? And we're not going to be able to effectively understand who we are if we haven't reckoned with who we have been and why. And as Christians, we're living through a time of unprecedented change, which has led to an identity crisis. And everyone who would profess Christ is, is going through one level of identity crisis right now. How, what does it look like to serve Jesus in a quote-unquote post-Christian society? A society that thinks that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, even though that the versions of Christianity that have been tried have not really reflected Jesus or his purposes. And how do we go about in a world when we are looked upon skeptically and with derision? And as members of Churches of Christ, we are experiencing an even further level of identity crisis beyond this. Who really are we? What do we really stand for? We have recently, in the past 30 or so years, gained greater currency in what we call evangelicalism, greater evangelicalism, because they have taken a much more ecumenical posture. And because of that, should we see ourselves in more alignment with evangelicalism, or should we continue to insist on our own distinctiveness? As part of this, how important is our doctrinal stance versus our practical behaviors? Is soundness in a church defined primarily by what is taught or what is done? What should our ideals be? And what do we privilege and prioritize among the ideals in the very messy and compromised world of the real? And so in the midst of this identity crisis, we do well to explore how we have arrived where we are, the heritage we have been given. What of the restoration movement and the restoration plea in the 21st century? Is there still value in the restoration call to New Testament faith? How do we best restore New Testament Christianity in the 21st century? And today we're going to talk about undenominational Christianity. It used to be a slogan, uh, Christians only but not the only Christians. What is denominationalism? Why just be non-denominational? What's wrong with that? Are we being just sectarian? Or are we, even worse, acting like a denomination in how we conduct ourselves while condemning others for just being more honest about their denominationalism? Is there a justification for undenominational Christianity? And is that something for which we should still strive? And as we begin this conversation, we need to understand what denominationalism is. 
that even people with only a little bit of exposure to Christianity is very aware that Christianity is highly fragmented into various groups called denominations. Most people are aware of that. Now, denomination has many definitions, but the two main uses that we use it for is to delineate among different kinds of monetary bills. So, uh, ones, fives, tens, twenties, or denominations of money. And also to describe the different churches in Christianity. One of the things that has proven very easy to do, especially among churches of Christ, for many reasons, is to kind of conflate all groups teaching some permutation or variant of Christianity, the umbrella of denominationalism, and everything that we stand against uh, as denominationalism. But we've it doesn't necessarily help us understand what denominationalism really is in in a historical, uh, cultural sense. What, what happened that led to the denominationalism that we see today? Because really, denominationalism can really needs to be more narrowed down to a very specific definition involving what happened in the wake of the Protestant Reformation and all the various organizations that, that popped up during it. Um, the sectarian, or perhaps even denominational impulse, is strongly critiqued in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 16, where you have the eye of Cephas, eye of Paul, or eye of Apollos factionalism um, that uh, happened among the Corinthian Christians, and they, that was leading to them forsaking the unity of faith and the joint participation in its workers to justify a personal preference. In Galatians 5, 19-21, contentiousness, divisiveness, factionalism, and sectarianism are all condemned as works of the flesh. That word sectarianism, sects uh, in many versions, is hieresis, from which we get the word heresy and the heresies. Uh, that's the core idea of what heresy is. It's something that divides uh, and, and creates a new sect. Now, there's, it's not like there weren't all kinds of different ideas, divisions, and sects before 1519 uh, when Martin Luther nailed those theses on the door at Wittenberg. The New Testament speaks of the Judaizers, quote-unquote, in, in Galatians 1 through 5, talks about, the, anticipates the Gnostics in 2 John 1, 6 through 9, and all kinds of groups developed over the first 1500 years of the faith, but most came and went. According to the New Testament, sure, Roman Catholicism is a sect, a departure from the apostolic faith enshrined in the earliest witness of the apostles and their associates. It's also be true of Eastern Orthodoxy. And Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox persecute any sect that existed, which is why true denominationalism did not exist until their worldly power was sufficiently broken in the 16th century to allow the development of other religious organizations. Now, to understand why denominationalism is the way it is, we have to understand that from the middle of the 16th until the middle of the 20th century, so, from about 1550 to 1950, 1975, uh, denominationalism writ large dominated Christianity, and it created the religious landscape that we find today. So, there was Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, right? Then we had Lutheranism, the Reformed churches of the Calvinists, the Anabaptist churches that would become the Mennonites and the Amish, and the Church of England, all within that first century there, in the, from about 1519 to 1618 or so. Uh, they agreed on the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. They agreed on the importance of upholding the truth of God according to how it had been handled, handed down in apostolic tradition, excuse me, and the importance of the unity of the church, but believed that every other group had perverted these ways, and they were the ones who had fully and truly upheld it. 
A lot of people have projected later understandings of the Reformation on the Reformers, that Luther and Calvin would have been horrified to hear the things that we say about them today. They had no desire to be revolutionaries. They had no desire to create new sects or denominations, if you ask them. They were driven by their confidence that it was the Roman Catholic Church that had corrupted apostolic tradition, and they were setting it right. So now you had that first wave, where now you've got out there, you've got the... Uh, Roman Catholic Church in the West, you've got the Calvinists, you've got the Lutherans, you've got the Anabaptists. And by 1800, so within another 150, 175 years, all of these organizations had themselves experienced reform movements that catalyzed new religious organizations. Within Catholicism, it didn't create new denominations per se, but you had the Jansenists and the Jesuits develop in, in that uh, organization. Uh, the Pietists and the Pietist churches came out of Lutheranism. Uh, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and they're formed with, from within Calvinism, uh, dividing on basis of church practice and, uh, and the modes of baptism and things of things like that. Uh, Methodism and the Religious Society of Friends or Quakers out of the uh, Church of England. And the Mennonites and the Amish from the Anabaptists. And so when Alexander and Thomas Campbell and Barton Stone and many others entered the scene in, in the end of the 18th and early 19th century, this denominationalism had uh, fully developed uh, in Christianity. You have all these different groups that exist. They all proclaim loyalty to Christ, but only according to their particular emphases that developed out of the actions and reactions in these various traditions. And they look at each other with skepticism and with hostility. And in that environment where you didn't have some of the comedy that you have among different uh, denominations today, and, and uh, you'd find Methodists strongly condemning Baptists and Congregationalists and vice versa, you can understand a bit of the impulse toward trying to get away from all of that. And it's not like it got better in the days of Stone and Campbell and afterward. It, in fact, exploded in the 19th and early 20th centuries that almost all the major or denominations saw organizational divides. So they would still be a Baptists, or they would be Methodists, or they would be um, Presbyterians. But you had different organizations of these groups based upon North-South divides, uh, Southern Baptists versus Northern Baptists, most famously. Um, and these intrasectarian, so within these denominational, those divides would be very much more nasty and awful than the divisions that would happen among the different denominations. The Holiness Movement led to the development of the Church of the Nazarene out of the Methodists and would itself split into a thousand fragments in the charismatic Pentecostal movement of the 20th century. And the 19th and 20th century also saw the development of groups which most in denominational Christianity would consider cults because they did not share a commitment to the Trinitarian view of God and Scripture. The Unitarian Universalists, who came out of the Socinians of the, 19th, of the 18th century, the Latter-day Saints uh, churches, and the Reformed Community of Christ, the Fundamentalists, and all that, Seventh-day Adventism, Christian Science, Jehovah's Witnesses, among others. And so the modern observers forgiven for seeing Christianity as a kaleidoscope of denominations who all claim the same type of mantle but are hopelessly divided in how to truly follow Christ. And so the question has been, what do you do in this environment? Do you, how do you move forward? Um, and even though Christianity has been divided 
in denominationalism. The New Testament has preserved the witness of Jesus and the apostles. And John 17, 20 through 23. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Ephesians 4, and 1, 1 through 16. In John 17, 20 through 23, Jesus prayed that his disciples, uh, those who would believe on him according to the word of the apostles, would be one as God is one within himself, the Father and the Son, the Son, the Father, that they may be perfectly one, them and us and we and them. And that they would share in that unity. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul appealed to the Corinthian Christians, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. In the Ephesian letter, in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And continued about the importance of building one another up in the faith. So this is an, a consistent appeal that Christians to be unified, to be of the same mind, the same judgment, to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in a savage irony, which you can only appreciate in Christianity, that how we obtain unity is itself a point of great contention and division. We can't even be unified in how we try to find unity. Roman Catholicism maintained its posture, which suggests that all these divisions just came out of disagreements with them, and we should all just come back under the uh, leadership of the Pope and, and Mother Church, so to speak, uh, trying to return to the way it was in the medieval times. But uh, how did the Church of Rome establish unity? Uh, through coercion and force, contrary to the ways of the Kingdom of Christ, and remains as beholden to their forms of tradition as the Pharisees of old were, and the Christians, therefore, should be wary of the leaven of the magisterium. Just like Jesus warned the disciples to be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16, 6, 11 through 12. Within the Restoration Movement itself, we find the two other ways in which the plea for unity has generally been set forth. And we're going to describe them in, in what seem to be contradictory terms, because they really are, but it's the way it's gone. Sectarian ecumenic ecumenicalism or ecumenical sectarianism. How did this happen? Well, the Restoration Movement was actually a unity movement when it first started. Christians only, but not the only Christians. Uh, it was a plea to find unity in the simple faith and practice espoused in the New Testament. Getting away from all the creeds, all of the isms, all of the different parties that have developed uh, in Christianity. Uh, the Eye of Apollos, Eye of Cephas, Eye of Christ has now been replaced with Eye of Luther, Eye of Calvin, Eye of Wesley and Eye of the Pope, and so on and so forth. Yet, within the Restoration Movement, there is always a tension between ecumenicism, which, which is trying to find unity, and sectarianism, which was attempting to maintain uh, group distinctiveness. Uh, creating a new between creating a new group of Christ out of the denomination, sort of an anti-denominational denomination, and just accepting the status quo of denominationalism, declaring a victory for unity and defeat. Um, so the Christians only but not the only Christians would end up becoming divided into the Christians only camp and the not the only Christian camp. The Christians only would become the ecumenical sectarians and the not the only Christians became the sectarian ecumenicalists. Sectarian ecumenicalism is seen in the modern ecumenical movement. 
And this was the trajectory of Alexander Campbell himself, and it became the model of that. He who insisted on New Testament doctrines uh, dictating the nature of the church would end up vouchsafing for a Protestant Christian America, and the Disciples of Christ Christian Church would follow that lead. So in sectarian ecumenicalism, you see the ecumenical movement of the day, uh, which has functionally redefined unity to incorporate first century, first mostly mainline historic Protestant denominations, and now later Catholic and evangelical groups. Uh, and these evangelical uh, denominations, who were initially not really considered part of the ecumenical movement, uh, who were looked upon suspicion, uh, your, some of your Methodists, your Baptists, uh, your, your, your Charismatics, uh, have now really uh, embraced ecumenism in a way that they didn't even 50, 35, 50 years ago. Uh, ecumenism really does have the goal of the unity of the faith. I believe they're very sincere in, in their goal to try to find unity in the faith. But they, they found out that the different groups weren't really willing to give up their organizations and to really manifest the unity of dropping all the organizations and coming together. And they've conceded to the fact that, okay, we have all these major divisions. These divisions are going to continue. And that's why we call it sectarian ecumenism. We're not going to give the conceit of that it's ecumenical because it still is ecumenical in maintaining all of these different sects, all of these different divisions. And they establish adherence to the creedal Christianity as a ground for unity. As long as there's agreement on who God is in Christ and salvation in Christ, they believe everything else can be matters of disagreement that allow for variance. And that's the way I suggest that sectarian ecumenicalism is really declaring victory and defeat. It sort of, sort, sort, of, sort of baptizes denominationalism and now suggests that the differences between Lutherans and Methodists or Presbyterians and Catholics is like the differences between the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus in the New Testament. And it explains a very strong push among Christians uh, toward ecumenical positions. That's why you hear so much about choose the church or your choice, go or you grow, or hey, we all believe in Jesus, so what, what does anything else matter? And yeah... You know, the New Testament testifies to the importance of unity among Christians. Again, this is what we're talking about. It's there. But Jesus and the Apostles envisioned a unity rooted in truth and substantive joint participation. One with one another as God is one within himself. Now, are there matters of disagreement? Yeah, in Romans 14, 1-23, Paul spoke about matters of liberty, where Christians were to tolerate different uh, levels of strength and, and conviction. Uh, but the same Paul condemns the Corinthians for their sectarian impulses of being divided by Apollos or Paul or Cephas. Or you can maybe dare add Luther or Calvin, Wesley, Smith, or even Campbell and Stone in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 4, 13. The entire letter of the Galatians is a warning that if Gentile Christians would return to the law to practice various Jewish traditions, they were separated from Christ. They were fallen from grace in Galatians 5, 1 through 5. And so if starting to follow some Jewish practices that are in the Bible is sufficient to lead one to be uh, to lose one's sal uh, salvation, to be separated, to fall from grace, uh, are we really to believe that it's just agreement on the historic creeds that matters? In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul insists he taught the same thing in every church. But very different things are taught in different denominational churches. The churches of the New Testament maintained the same faith. They differed in geography and nationality, not different sets of doctrines, like you see in modern denominationalism. That's kind of a, a nice uh, re reading back into the past there of a situation that wasn't really there. In Ephesians 4, 1-16, Paul talks about why it's so important to emphasize unity and work toward unity through joint participation. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12-28, you had the idea of one universal church, one body. But that, in practice, demands participation together. 
And that's what we're talking about. Uh, it, it doesn't have that real joint participation. Just saying, okay, we're going to say we're, we're all part of the bigger body of Christ, but having absolutely no actual uh, face-to-face association is, again, the pretense of unity without any of its substance. And is the Lord Jesus really going to be honored by the pretense of unity without any of its actual substance? And that's why, like suggested, sectarian ecumenicalism, as appealing as it sounds, is not the way forward. Because all it does is make it seem like there's work toward unity, but we're just really just baptizing the status quo. And that's not healthy. That's not what Jesus is after. Now, the reaction to this ecumenical sectarianism is often seen in many churches of Christ and in many the Christians. Uh, churches of Christ in general have ended up on the other side of the tension in the Restoration Movement than the Disciples of Christ Christian Church. In effect, creating a new sect opposed to all that is denominational, what is denominational in nature. Ecumenical sectarianism goes beyond desire for undenominational Christianity to become a kind of anti-denominational denomination. It identifies itself primarily in its posture toward and against other denominational sects. As such, it redefines denominational. Denominational is now no longer of a specific group of, of, of churches. It becomes anything with which we disagree and what we condemn. And you can see this in the way that you can immediately cast aspersions on any idea. If you say, well, you know, that sounds denominational. It's like, it's like you've just called out the boogeyman. That if you call it denominational, now all of a sudden we're all going to look at it. And and see that, well, you know, it has to be wrong now, or it has to be horrible now, because you know it's uh, it's denominational. The focus of ecumenical sectarianism is really to justify the sect and its existence. It's really less about proclaiming Christ and Him crucified and how to serve Him, more about upholding the distinctiveness of the sect and the condemnation of other sect, and how to be satisfied that one has in fact found the correct sect. And in another savage irony, the anti-denominational sect ends up acting very denominational. They insist on using one particular form of identification. They strongly patrol the behaviors and ideas of other people and congregations for any form of deviance from the accepted sectarian ideology, all while unconsciously creating and perpetrating an unofficial version of the denominationalism that they are condemning in others. Now, I want to be very clear about something. The apostles and their associates warn against false teachers and the advancement of false teaching in the midst of Christians. 1 Timothy 4.1, uh, following off the doctrine of demons, uh, 1 Timothy 6.3-11, things like that. And uh, we've already said that uh, denominationalism itself is problematic. It does not maintain the union of the scriptures. Uh, saying all everybody in denominations is fine is, is something that goes beyond what is made known in the New Testament. Acting like everything's okay, we just saw, is not an option. But it's very important to note there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we didn't mention this at the beginning, that when he says that there are divisions among you, and he's, he's saying that this is not a good thing, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And he continues on. 
Now, it'd be very easy to say, well, you know, the, the I, I follow Christ people are the right people, and Paul's really condemning other people. But here's the thing. Paul could have just given that list off and taken out the Christ part if they weren't coming under any censure. It, what it seems what's going on in Corinth is that there were some Christians who were acting like, ah, see, you all have it wrong. We have it figured out. We're the better ones because we're following Christ, and you're just all messed up with all these other people. And Paul was condemning that kind of mentality and posture as much as those who are following Apollos or Cephas or of Paul. Why? The sectarian mindset. Not that they were identifying as being of Christ, but they were using this in a divisive way. We again return to sectarianism, divisiveness, contentiousness, are works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19-21, and those who participate in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot manifest the fruit of the Spirit in sectarianism. Sectarianism is not the definition of the church. So just like sectarian ecumenicalism is not the way forward, neither is ecumenical sectarianism. So very sadly, many appeals to unity for the faith have fallen on their face because they perpetuate the very conditions that have led to the divisions that have affected Christianity. Is there another way? I'd like to suggest there is. That if sectarianism is indeed a work of the flesh, we need to resist sectarianism entirely. We need to get away from all forms of denominationalism. And so undenominational, rather than non-denominational Christianity, might be our way forward. Non-denominational sounds good, but it's been co-opted by many who are still practicing very sectarian forms of Christianity without institutional organizational connections. So what is seen in non-denominational churches actually looks a lot like what you find in many denominational churches. And what's going on now is a lot of churches seem to be non-denominational, have dropped the, the denominational association uh, visibly uh, and kind of now make it a footnote. Uh, trying to get away from that sectarian uh, de definition. Undenominational Christianity, though, involves what is best about the whole of the Restoration Movement, an appeal to find unity in Christ, not in the traditions or divisions of men, but in what God has made known about Jesus through the witness of the apostles and their associates in the New Testament. Undenominational Christianity has to recognize the existence of denominationalism and that it has profoundly affected Christianity. Those in undenominational Christianity are going to have to respond to the claims from people in denominations. But if we're going to be undenominational Christians, we recognize that Jesus did not intend for his body to be denominated in the first place. In John 17, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. And so those who practice undenominational Christianity will not be obsessed by the prevalence of denominationalism. So yes, you know, if we were practicing pure, simple New Testament faith, we wouldn't have to discuss instrumental music or, or pontificate on specific definitions of the Trinity or go into great detail about why uh, baptism needs to be immersion in water for the permission of sins or emphasize the way the church is supposed to work because we would, haven't, we, we would just be doing that. We wouldn't have seen all these other various ideas come up that we'd have to show uh, are not according to the scriptures. But we cannot be so consumed by the disagreements that we have with those who participate in dominations that that becomes our entire focus and our entire modus operandi. Because Paul warned about sectarianism. 
those who would advance different doctrines, and those who would advance party factionalism. In 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Christians who are trying to practice a denominational Christianity, though, are going to seek to follow Jesus in the simplicity of the apostolic faith and the practice preserved once for all the saints in the gospel in Jude 1 and verse 3. So this means that the truth of God is made known in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No other way to the Father but through him. The truth of God is not ascertained by the opposite of what any given denomination is teaching. You know, the, the, that whole thing about, well, that's denominational. That's a very fatuous argument because, quite honestly, everything is, is denominational. Oh, you believe that baptism regenerates? That's, that's denominational. Roman Catholics teach that. Oh, you believe that baptism is immersion in water? That, that's denominational. The Baptists teach that. You don't use instruments in your assembly, huh? That's denominational. Eastern Orthodox have never had instruments in their assembly. Anything can be called denominational because there's a denomination practicing pretty much anything. In fact, if you could find an idea, a doctrine that no denomination is practicing, now that's even more suspicious. Because are you telling me that for 2,000 years no one else figured this out? It took somebody else now to figure it out? That sounds dangerously untested. It's not a part of the Christian tradition at all. So here's the thing. Nothing is true because denominations do not practice it. Nothing is false because denominations practice it. What denominations do or don't do is not the standard of truth. There are lots of things practiced by many denominations that are false. There are some things that we see taught and preach denominations which is true and right and good. Now, those who participate in denominations will seek to justify their existence in those organizations. Those who may be non-denominational but have bought into sectarian ecumenism will justify that stance. You know, and God's going to be their judges in, in Romans 14, 10 through 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if we're honest and right that denominationalism is a problem, we need to get away from denominational thinking and fear and apprehension about denominationalism. We're going to let God decide to do what we know of those who are in denominations, and we're going to just insist on appealing to what God has made known about Jesus and his kingdom through the apostles and their associates revealed in the New Testament. That we as undenominational Christians, if that's what we want to be, need to understand that we're on firm ground only when we speak about ourselves and what we're trying to do. That we're trying to get away from the traditions of men. That we're trying just to cling to Jesus. To emphasize what he taught and how he lived. To speak what the apostles and their associates spoke about Jesus and life in his kingdom. To seek authority in the New Testament for all they think, feel, and do in Colossians 3.17. Yes, there will be times as undenominational Christians we're going to have to address the ideas and practices of denominations which are not consistent with what is revealed in the New Testament and to show how it is without authority or to demonstrate when needed that it's contrary to the gospel of Christ and therefore anathema like in Galatians 1, 6-9 Paul did not shy away from that but undenominational Christianity is not to be defined by what it opposes it is to be defined by following Jesus as the Christ to observe the whole council of God. Read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. 
Those are some of the letters where Paul spends the most time he ever does talking about false doctrines and teachings. And even there, he spent plenty of time on principles regarding righteousness versus sin, exhortations about conduct and relationship, and always grounding it in what God has accomplished in Jesus and how that transforms the world and transforms us in his kingdom. Undenominational Christianity is not fearing denominationalism or fearing denominations. It's about transcending denominationalism. If we are creating a we are of Christ party or sect, we are just as condemned as those who create sects glorifying a preacher, like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Undenominational Christianity glorifies God when Christ is preached, whether in truth or pretense. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. He says about people who are advancing ideas he thinks are are misguided. They're preaching the gospel in ways to get him in trouble. They're trying to uh, cause him difficulty. And he says, whether in truth or in pretense, Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. Undenominational Christianity does not intend to make a new denomination out of the church, but to honor God's purposes for the church as a universal body under the authority of Jesus, manifest in the world in local churches shepherded by elders, served by deacons whenever possible, who strive to follow the New Testament to praise God wherever and whenever Christians turn to the New Testament and the New Testament alone as their model of faith and practice. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 5, Jude 1, 3, many other places. In undenominational Christianity, it should be the pure and simple goal of following Jesus in his kingdom according to what was made known in Scripture, to associate with fellow believers who do the same, to seek relational unity with God and one another, to become the type of people for whom Jesus prayed in John 17, 20 through 23. So we have explored denominationalism, and we found it wanting. Denominationalism has formed as those who profess Christ disagree with one another, and they establish rival institutions. Sectarian ecumenicalism, the attempt to rationalize what's happened in that story, to maintain denominationalism but hold, uphold the pretense of unity, is insufficient. Ecumenical sectarianism, the attempt to create the anti-denomination denomination, is no better. The way forward ought to be undenominational Christianity. And many yearn for it. As we speak, the power of denominationalism is waning. Although that's happening more because of the hyper-individualism of Americans and a lack of loyalty to institutions growing up among the young, more than a desire for New Testament simplicity. Yet again, many claim that the New Testament is their only authority. And many do have churches not explicitly associated or affiliated with any denomination. And they find appeal. People want to be part of these places that are really trying to follow the New Testament, even if we disagree with some of their conclusions on some matters. So yes, there are some people who do yearn for undenominational Christianity. And throughout time, there have been people who have recognized that the way of Christ should not be the way of denominationalism. We do well to practice new undenominational Christianity. A Christianity that's neither ecumenical nor sectarian. Not of a party spirit, but a genuine desire to serve God faithfully in Jesus only, according to what he has made known in the scripture. That we prove to be simply Christians, to speak of ourselves simply as followers of Jesus, seeking to encourage others to follow Jesus according to what he has made known in the New Testament, and in doing so, obtain the resurrection of life. We hope that you share in that and would like to participate with us. If you've been benefited by this message, we encourage you to share with others on social media. If you'd like to come and, and learn more about us at the Venice Church of Christ, you'd like to have to talk about these things or other things, if you uh, 
would like to have a Bible study, if you'd like to pursue undenominational Christianity more, please contact us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on social media. If I can be of any service, please reach out to me on my website at TheVerbalVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.